0: Bringing you around the world right from your desktop, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: Yes, and as the introduction says, VoiceAmerica.com does bring you people from around the world. Uh, my guest today is speaking from uh, Israel. And uh you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. A lot is going on in the Middle East. I don't have to uh, remind you all of that. Um, today, my guest, uh, my year... Jo- <laughs> I'm going to try my best to pronounce his name. Mayer Javay um is a Middle East analyst, and in particular an Iranian analyst, and um, he lives in Tel Aviv. And there are a lot of things, as there often are, or more and more often are, in the news um, about what's going on in the Middle East, not just the war in Iraq but uh certainly things that are going on in other countries and today my plan had been um to talk and we will talk about Iran and the nuclear threat uh to the world and why um but I would like to start off since um can I call you mayor? <laughs> mayor no problem. <laughs> mayor, yes. Yeah. Um uh Mayor, since he's in Tel Aviv, I thought we would talk first about um, the bombing that occurred yesterday, and uh, that was the first of the the first uh, this the first bomb that was so devastating in quite a long time, Uh, and I imagine that that's what's on the news and on everybody's mind right now. There,
3: it is absolutely. Unfortunately, Carol, for the first time since Hamas took over the leadership of the Palestinian people, democratically, I should say, um, a suicide bomber, a teenager from the city of Jenin, came to Tel Aviv. Uh, we don't know how he was transported to the city Probably there was a a terrorist cell which was assisting him. Hmm. He went to the old central station of Tel Aviv. It's a place where most of the people there are migrants, um, but also a lot of Israelis go there to hang out, especially families. This was the day before the Passover festivities ended. Hmm. He went to a restaurant which had already been the victim of a previous suicide attack. He tried to get in there, but thankfully... And the, the guard stopped him, but nevertheless, despite the fact that the guard managed to open his bag, he set off the bomb. He killed nine people, and uh, 30 people are injured. And out of those 30 people, seven of them are in critical condition. If the guard hadn't stopped him, and if he had got gotten through inside the restaurant, I shudder to think how many people would have died. So, but it's still very sad, and uh, this has to be stopped by the Hamas government.
2: Now, I mean, I guess there were there were just seconds between the time that the guard stopped him and the time that he detonated his bomb. Is that right?
3: Uh, absolutely. It's uh, see what happens in a lot of these cases, Carol. The the switch for their bomb is inside their pocket, and. Uh, as he was opening, I believe, his bag to show him, he put his hand in his pocket, mm. and he set off the switch. Now, it's almost impossible to, to stop that. One guard managed to do it, he, right here in Tel Aviv, in a in a tourist bar, which was something like five meters away from the U.S. Embassy. Uh, he managed to stop the hand of the suicide bomber going in. He arrested him, and, and uh, the police came and took him away, and, the, and that guard barely spoke Hebrew. He was a... Uh, He was an immigrant from Azerbaijan who had just come to Israel and was given that job, which is quite a low-paying job. But um, sometimes miracles do happen. Unfortunately, they don't happen all the time.
2: Yes. So I guess, is there, um, do a lot of the people who are guards know about that? I mean, is that sort of a, um, has there been sort of an information campaign so that more guards would do that kind of thing or more people who are on, um, in those positions?
3: The guards in Israel, despite the low wages that they receive, are quite well trained in majority of cases. I mean, even in, I've seen it, even in shopping centers, you know, they they sometimes uh, run uh, simulations where they ask somebody, one of the crowd, just to carry something like a fake gun, you know what I mean, just to see if the guy is going to spot it or not. But then you have, you know, they have all these drills. So they are very well vetted, they are very well trained, not everybody. I'm not, I can't confirm that, but majority of them are are ex-combat so, uh, soldiers from mm-hmm. the army, and they are quite well in tune. And ma- in many cases, many of these guys have saved lives. But as I said, it's a, it's almost it's, it's a very difficult job, and sometimes they are unsuccessful. Not because of their fault; it's because the terrorist is more determined to kill as many innocent people as possible than than anyone else. So unfortunately. Uh, That's the case.
2: Well, does anyone. uh, Now, you know, what was also particularly interesting about this um, suicide bomber is that he left a videotaped message beforehand. Could you tell us about that?
3: Yes. In the majority of these cases, um, the suicide bombers. Leave a, this is, leave a video. This is part of a psychological warfare. This is the message beyond the grave to to haunt the, the Israeli families. That this is who I am. I'm proud of what I did. I'm going to get you, and my colleagues are going to get you. And in his message, he said there are 70 other people who are going to follow. Uh, my footsteps. So this is meant to scare all other Israelis from carrying on with their normal lives. Now his video was it's normal run of the mill. In another video, which was uh, recorded by another suicide bomber during the heydays of the Intifada, the the mother of the suicide bomber kisses him before he goes on, on on video, before the operation, knowing full well that her son is going to murder innocent people. And um, unfortunately, again, that, 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 that was done for psychological uh, warfare purposes. But what I'd like to point out, as I always do, Carol, is that not all Palestinian people are terrorists. Not all Palestinian people want Israel eliminated. They are our neighbors. We, our job is to find a way of living in peace with them and at the same time finding a way of uh, making sure that these terrorists who are a minority amongst them are defeated.
2: Well, now, that, this would be a good spot for you to um, give us a little bit of your background, where you were born and how you, why you're, uh, what brought you to Tel Aviv.
3: Um, I was born in the city of Tehran a very big city one of the most populated cities of the Middle East and today I I would say in a couple of years will be one of the most populated cities of the world it is a very beautiful it's a very friendly city it was a beautiful city now it's full of traffic you you can cover one mile in one hour so if you guys in LA you think you got it bad then (laughs) Tehran Tehrani citizens have got it much worse Um, the people are very friendly they're wonderful people and uh, in 1987 I come from a Jewish family uh, we are from a 2,500-year-old um, uh, community which settled in Iran after the Babylonian exile. Uh, the Iranian King Cyrus, um, uh, his son, King Darius, uh, released all the Jews. Some went back to Israel and some stayed in Iran, and that's my family. Hmm. Uh, we left in 1987. We left, um, we left the Iranian government. We never left the Iranian people, but we didn't like the way the government was was carrying on. We didn't agree with their politics, and my family left the country. Uh, We went to the United Kingdom. Uh, My parents, after three years in the United Kingdom, emigrated to Israel. I stayed there for professional and educational reasons. And then a year and a half ago, I decided to join them in Israel, and I established a company that does analysis of 16 countries of the region, which is the first company in the Middle East to do it.
2: Hmm. And um, what were you studying in the U.K.?
3: I have a master's in international relations and strategic studies. I have a bachelor's in business and management, and I also have another master's in uh, management information systems.
2: And I guess you're finding um, people... You were just telling me before we started the show that you did two interviews today already for other for Finland and uh, South Africa. So I guess you're in a um, spot where people are, are really... Really want to know what's going on because it is true that um, the media um, doesn't, in, in the United States and, and probably in other countries too, don't really give a as clear a picture as someone certainly who's living there.
3: Um, somebody who was living there. I wish I could be living there now, but it's uh, slightly it's difficult the, when you're an Israeli citizen. But
2: no, I you mean know, he's if, living who's living in the Middle East.
3: Middle East, absolutely. Um, it is, I believe you, even when you live in Israel, you have a pretty good picture of what's going on in Iran because Iran is not as close society as many people think it is or as the Western media would like to make people believe that it is. Iran, compared to a lot of other Middle Eastern countries, is a very open country, It's it's you have something like thirty news agencies. Hmm. You know they report on different issues. They carry out. They are subject to censors, but still the the lines for censorship in Iran are much wider than many other places. They analyze, they address, and criticize government policy in many areas. Iranian uh, people are very outspoken about uh, many many things, and you know they they are not shy to air their views, especially on the internet. Therefore, it is it is. Quite possible and in many cases easy to find out what is going on in Iran even when you're outside it. It's easier for me because I'm an Iranian myself. I was born there and I lived there and I was educated there till the age of 14. So, uh, it's, um, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of information to absorb but, um, it's my job. I enjoy it and I believe I'm good at it. So, uh, watch this space.
2: Well, um, you know, I I do want we I can see that we're about a minute away from uh, a break. Perhaps we can take that now. I would like to continue a little bit more about um I have some more questions about the suicide bombing from yesterday and then we'll go into uh some talk directly about Iran and and what on earth is going on.
3: No problem.
2: So, um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest today My guest today Ismail uh, G- Javet Danfer, he is the author of a new book that's coming out called The Nuclear Sphinx of Tehran, and that's all about what we're going to be talking about today, uh, Iran and the bomb. So stay tuned. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we'll continue with what's going on in
4: the Middle East.
0: The powerhouse of internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
4: Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage.
3: Let's look for leaky windows,
4: said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. For leaky doors what? said the second let's look for a swing set, uh, said the third <laughs> for he had more blubber than brains so they set off down the road presently they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelt a clever girl named Dreddylox.
3: i hope it has leaky windows
4: cried the first energy hog i hope
3: it has leaky doors
4: cried the second i hope it has a bathroom cried the third for only his brains were smaller than his bladder but dready liked playing cool games at energyhog.org and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely so the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not.
0: This
1: public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen. Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen. Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible.
0: The Powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio VoiceAmerica.com
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist's host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is a Middle East analyst. His name is Meir Javay Danfar. And uh, we're talking, we've been talking about uh, the bombing, the suicide bombing that occurred yesterday in Israel. And we're also going to be talking about the bomb, <laughs> the big bomb that uh, apparently Iran is planning. I just wanted to ask you a few um other questions about the suicide bomber. Um in in aljazeera.net, which is always interesting to look at from time to time. Um the story that they had was that um his father, the the now it, it they said that the suicide bomber was 21. Is that other reports say 18.
3: There's a discrepancy, nobody's 100% right. sure yet.
2: Well, okay. Um he, he, he apparently, they said that his father is 50 years old and that he was a municipal worker uh and he could hardly make ends meet to feed his nine children. And somehow, they, it, it said, uh, it gives the name of a distant relative who puts the blame on Israel for uh the suicide bombers' actions, Israel's oppression. Now, how is it that Israel is responsible for this man having nine children... <laughs> and then having a problem feeding them.
3: Um, Carol, you know, in in every war, it takes two sides to make a war. Nobody is completely innocent in any conflict. The Palestinians have done bad things, and Israel has done bad things in different areas. Um, There's no such thing as whiter than white. Now, the problem here is some of these terrorists take up a problem that they have and they blame it on others they try to make the other side look like evil they don't take their own responsibilities and unfortunately this is what the extremists are doing if this gentleman's father wants to have nine children all the power to him we wish him every prosperity and all the best in the world now if he's going to uh, encourage his son to do these acts then that's wrong now
2: well, oh, but I mean, but you could kind of see what I'm trying to say is that if someone—I mean, I guess the point of this was that they were living in in um, severe poverty, and you could see where any, no matter what nationality, you could see where uh, a little boy growing up seeing his father, you know, feel bad presumably for not being able to feed his or take care of his family um, well enough you could see where a little boy in any country would uh, get angry you know feel and maybe not understanding the circumstances that brought that about would get angrier and angrier and i guess you know then perhaps what getting under the tutelage of people who are uh, trying to create more terrorists and suicide bombers you know i mean it would kind of feed into that sort of vulnerability to that
3: it <laughs> feeds into it but uh, the people who make the most of this other extremists, as you quite rightly said. You know, here we have Islamic Jihad talking about defending the rights of the oppressed Palestinians. Of course, the Palestinians have been oppressed, not just by Israel, but many different countries, but Israel is doing its best. Look, you know, in in August, Israel withdrew 8,000 settlers from Gaza. We did that for peace. Israel did that for peace. We're hoping that, step by step, we're going to come with some sort of understanding. We're going to reduce the hardship that the Palestinians suffer. Do you know, that was a very psychologically difficult experience for many Israelis, Carol. You know, people in Israel who were living in Tel Aviv, in the posh suburbs of Tel Aviv, who would never been into Gaza, even they were, many of them were upset. And it was it was traumatizing to watch all these families crying, well, kids I was, screaming. Well,
2: I was, yes, absolutely. We, I was not for that. I mean, I've been to Israel, and I've been... Uh, to those places, and I did not think that this was a very good move because I didn't think in the end that it would really end up creating more peace.
3: You have to sometimes take steps that the payoffs are not immediate. We are hoping that in the future... This will lead to less extremism and less poverty and less difficulties for the Palestinians. Now the Palestinians have an international border, Rafa. They are not living under Israeli control because they can get in and out of that border as they wish. There's no Israeli control over that. They can go to to Egypt at their heart's content. What's happened here is that the Islamic Jihad, they just want to eliminate. That's all their policy is. They are talking about improving the lives of Palestinians, but they don't think nothing of taking a young Palestinian child and making him into a bomb Mm -hmm. and killing him just so that they look glorious. We have yet to see one leader of Islamic Jihad to take any of these operations himself.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Unfortunately, these movements, Islamic Jihad, such as Islamic Jihad, they are terrorist organizations. Their agenda is only, only destruction. They will use any reason that they can use to, uh, to recruit Palestinians. And the poorer they are, they less, you know, they're the more susceptible they are for being used for such operations. Yeah. And I only feel sorry for that family that they have just lost their son, um, even though he's, he's, he's killed many innocent people I'm sure it's a very very difficult feeling for for his family and for his parents but you know the step what I always like to make clear is this, the future, the path to future peace between us and our Palestinian neighbors is two states side by side together, not one over the other together they need to help us facilitate that because Israel is a democratic country we need to vote for this Palestine of the future will be built by us being together, talking, and coming to agreement. Palestine will not be built over dead bodies of Israeli civilians in buses and restaurants. And the the sooner our Palestinian neighbors realize that, the sooner we can get over this war and come to some sort of a peace agreement.
2: Yes, and so I guess the the idea would be that because... But why are the Palestinians dependent upon Israel to... um, I mean, it sounded like the, or at least from from this family or this that um, that there seems to be a kind of dependency or an expectation that somehow um, Israel is obligated to take care of the Palestinians and build their city, and you know, not just to get off the land, but to actually build, you know, somehow make that a prosperous country.
3: Well, legally speaking, if you're occupying a a piece of land under United Nations law, you are. It is your responsibility to provide for the people who are living under your control. So Israel is responsible for the areas that it's occupying, but a lot of these areas are in the Palestinian Authority area. So it's their job to look after these to look after their own citizens. Now, Islamic to Islamic Jihad, Carol, Jenin is uh, Jenin is not occupied territory. Tel Aviv is occupied territory. The whole land of Israel, Mm -hmm. pre-1967, is occupied territory. They don't want Israelis here. But they are extremists and they are a minority and they are supported by my country of birth, Iran. What can we do? And one of the most powerful countries of the Middle East has decided to train, finance, and back these guys. And they are wreaking havoc. And, you know, they're using poverty as an excuse, as as something to justify their existence. But the bad news here is that, Carol, poverty has existed since the beginning of time. And it's never going to go away. And they're always going to have some sort of people that they can use to to carry out these acts.
2: Yes. Okay, well, that's a good segue into Iran. I mean, because that is one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. It does seem as though um, through some of the earlier, um, I don't know, a month ago or so, some of the statements that were made by some of the leaders of Iran against Israel, it seems like, and now you have this whole issue of the bomb, and, and I guess the question is, Um, why does iran want a bomb and one of the things that i'm wondering about is is it does it want it to wipe israel off the face of the map face of the earth
3: There, there are in terms of iranian government carol there's two iranian governments the iranian government's very schizophrenic there's the iranian government of rhetoric and then there's the iranian government of action the two are not always related In terms of rhetoric, the Iranian government is very conservative. It comes up with with very um, uh, controversial statements. The Iranians have been screaming death to America, death to Russia, death to Saddam Hussein, death to whoever you want. But despite that, the Iranian government has been very pragmatic. Look, in a country that's 27 years old, Carol, it's managed to survive a revolution, a bloody revolution, it's managed to survive the longest war in modern history. Eight years of war carried on, and Iran is still there. The Iranian government is still there. Iran has lived under U.S. embargo for more than 20 years. It, the economy is still moving forward. They have problems, but they are moving forward. The government of Iran is very pragmatic when it comes to action. Now, the, gov- the government of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has said, we want... The, uh, we want Israel eliminated. First of all, he's not the first person to say it. The first person who said that was Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Revolution. He said it 16 days after the establishment of the revolution to his first foreign guest. And his first foreign guest was none other than Yasser Arafat.
2: Hmm.
3: Yasser Arafat came to Tehran. He received 100 million dollars from Iran in terms of assistance uh, for the Palestinian cause. One year later than that, Carol, the Iraqis invaded Iran. Yasser Arafat said, excuse me, I'm an Arab, I'm going to side with my Arab brothers. He turned his back on Iran. And after that, Iran found that it couldn't do business with the Palestinian nationalists because they, they sided with the, with the Arab side during the war. So it started cultivating relationship with the extremists, the Islamic, the Islamic side of uh, the Palestinian struggle, if you want to call it. Uh, and since then, Iran has managed to support these organizations, and part of, its rest, part of its support has been the rhetoric to eliminate Israel. Now, would Iran eliminate Israel if it had the bomb? I would say no, because... The Iranian government, as I said, is pragmatic. It wants to get into a war, but it doesn't, want to, it doesn't want suicide. In 1988, Iran agreed to a ceasefire against Iraq. The decision was so difficult for Iran to stop fighting that Ayatollah Khomeini compared it to drinking a glass of poison. But he, he did it because he knew that if Iran carried on fighting Iraq, then Iraq would win and he would lose power. Iran knows that if it gets into a fight with Israel, if it drops a nuclear bomb on Israel, Israel has other capabilities of, of causing massive damage to Iran, which nobody wants, most of all the Iranian government. I mean, they, they, don't want, they don't want to lose power, and therefore they're not going to get into a struggle, which at the end of it, they might come out also the losers.
2: Well, you said they wanted to get into a war. What, what do you mean by that? No, I mean, if well, they... You hear the music. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. We're going to have to leave that as a cliffhanger. Um, You're listening. This is, you know, obviously also very fascinating. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about what is going on in the Middle East. My guest is Mayer J. P- Thank you, that's what I'll do I'll just leave it for you to say right? <laughs> <laughs> and he is uh, a Middle East analyst And um, he's also the author of a book That, he, that he's um, begun writing It's actually not out yet But um, called The Nuclear Sphinx of Tehran And obviously that's something that's going to be a must read So stay tuned as we continue talking about Iran and the bomb, And uh, back with my guest
0: Bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the greyhound. Learn about the history of the greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, our guest is Jamie Bamber. You'll know him from Battlestar Galactica. He plays Leah Dama. We talk about Battlestar Galactica and get a look inside of Jamie's life. Of course, we'll cover all the sci-fi news for the week as usual. That's Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo.
0: bringing you around the world right from your desktop voiceamerica.com welcome
1: back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman and welcome back to dr carol's couch i'm your
2: psychiatrist host dr carol lieberman Talking to you today about Iran and the bomb, the suicide bomber that was in Israel, and everything else that's going on in the Middle East with my guest, Middle East analyst Meir Jervé Danfar. Um, we were talking before, <laughs> before the break about uh, Iran and the bomb and, and um, uh, what, was, what the status of that is and whether it's going to be used on Israel.
3: Um, In my opinion, Iran is not going to use the bomb against against Israel, as I said, because if Iran uses the bomb against Israel, it's going to suffer massive consequences, and the Iranian government is not suicidal. So I think it's very unlikely that Iran is going to use the bomb directly against Israel.
2: What what, what we were specifically talking about was you had said um, that you thought that Iran wants to get into a war. And what war is it that that they want to get into?
3: Um, the Iranian government, the only war that they want to get into right now is a, th- a proxy war against Israel through militant movements. So, you know, they want to weaken Israel. And one of the ways that they're doing it is by financing organizations that are that are extremist and militant and, and want Israel destroyed. Uh, movements such as Hamas and J- Islamic Jihad. Even though in reality these guys don't have a chance of wiping Israel off the map, but their constant attacks has had an impact on the Israeli economy, as we saw it during the Second Intifada. So therefore, they will continue supporting these movements as as kind of like a war of attrition to wear down Israel's ability to take casualties.
2: Okay. And so where does their wanting to create a nuclear bomb fit in?
3: Well, the Iranian government wants, in my opinion, to, to develop a nuclear weapon uh, because, first of all, uh, the United States, who Iran has termed the Iranian government, Ayatollah Khomeini, first of all, termed as the great Satan, has moved its bases from Europe right to Iran's doorsteps. Before, American soldiers were based in Germany. Now, they're based in Iraq. They're based in Afghanistan. They're based in the Persian Gulf. America is surrounding Iran. Um, this is making the Iranian government very nervous. The Iranian government is worried about regime change. They saw what happened to Saddam Hussein. They're worried that the same will happen in their country. Then there's also um, another reason why Iran would be developing the bomb, and that's... You know, during the Iraqi invasion of Iran in 1980, Saddam Hussein invaded Iranian territory, Carol. This was an imposed war against Iran, but because Iran was the bad guy, nobody acknowledged it. And at the same time, Iran was made to fight against Iraq with one hand tied behind his back. Why? Because the West agreed to sell weapons to Iraq, mainly the Western and the Soviet Union, while Iran was placed under an embargo. Now, this enabled Iraq to carry on attacking and killing many number of civilian Iranians. The West didn't say anything. Then Saddam Hussein said, fine, these Iranians are weak. The West doesn't care about them. Then I'm just going to really, I'm going to try to destroy them. So he started using weapons of mass destruction. He caused basic chemical genocide against Iranian soldiers and against some Iranian civilians who live on the border with Iraq. Again, after what happened in the Holocaust, after you know, many, of, uh, many Jewish people were killed by Cyclone B, we thought that the world has learned not to allow other regimes to repeat genocide by using chemical weapons. Well, Saddam Hussein did it. Did the United Nations impose sanctions against Saddam for using weapons of mass destruction? No. Did the United States stop him? Absolutely not. Did the UK do anything? Not not only they did nothing, a month later the British Trade Secretary went to Iraq and gave them credit to um, to buy British goods. Now, Iran after that felt alone. The Iranian people felt disbanded by the international community, and the idea was developed that if anybody is going to defend Iran, it's going to be the Iranian people. And, if he, and, you know, uh, the, the, the psychological effects of, of the use of weapons of mass destruction against Iranians gave the impetus and the backing for Iran to set on the path of creating some sort of deterrence against the application of weapons of mass destruction against its citizens. Now, I'm not going to tell you that's the biggest reason why Iran is creating the bomb, but that's one of them. It's a very important one, and it shouldn't be overlooked
2: yes and it just uh shows how how things escalate that um all you know the various wars the various acts of violence all over the world uh have an impact you know sort of a domino effect and really if we're going to be trying to strive for peace um it can't be tolerated anywhere i mean violence can't be or shouldn't be tolerated anywhere because, I mean, that you know, it, it is certainly the history of the Middle East is replete with that, that at one time, you know, these people were, well, I mean, I guess not just the Middle East, it's the world, but certainly it's, it's like kids in a kindergarten class, you know, or or, or elementary school, there are cliques at one particular time, and then they make other best friends, you know, and, and, um, and are against the, the person that was their best friend a week ago and um, of course when you're playing this game with countries it's a lot more dangerous
3: well Carol in order to get rid of that problem the world has international bodies and international law this is why the world uh, set up the United Nations after the Second World War this is why we have international laws now if the West suicide and watch those laws being ignored by Iraq during the, when, when they invaded Iran, then I don't think too many people should be surprised when Iran turns around later on and ignores them themselves because they see that these laws are ineffective. They weren't, when Iran needed the United Nations and the international legal system to protect it as a, member of the sovereign, uh, as a sovereign member of the international community, the world stood aside. It didn't mean anything. So afterwards, they did the same. They said, okay, if the United Nations resolutions are not going to protect us, then we're just going to have to protect ourselves at the expense of, at the, expense of the United Nations. Everybody else ignores the UN. Why not us? And i tell you an interesting factor, Carol. This is... One of the doctrines behind Israel's defense uh, defense mechanism, Israel many times has lost faith in the United Nations, and that's why Israel has been defending itself sometimes against the opinion and wishes of the United Nations yeah. and the international community, because the laws by the, of the United Nations are very selectively applied, and that's dangerous. If we are going to use international law, we should use it for everybody, there shouldn't be exceptions when we apply exceptions, then we shouldn't be surprised that other countries stop breaking them as well.
2: Yes, um, I certainly can see that now, what about um, this, what's happened today there was uh, uh, actually today there was a a um, speech made by the Iranian president. Tell us about the imp- the impact of that.
3: President Ahmadinejad declared today that foreign invaders will have their hands cut off if they try to attack Iran. Look, Ahmadinejad, he's, um, in terms of his personality, he's a war veteran. He's, uh, he's, you can tell from his body language, the way he speaks in Farsi, the way he carries himself. He's a very confident person. He believes totally in what he's doing. Um, He feels almost invincible. He thinks that, you know, Iran has... Every reason to be confident, and the time to be confident is now. Iran has the world's second largest oil reserves. Iran is OPEC's second biggest oil producer. The world needs oil more than any other time. Oil is a scarce commodity. Iran can call the shots. At the same time, America is stuck in in Iraq. America, to him, is weak. He controls Iraq. Iran has a massive say in what happens in Iraq. Therefore, Iran can use his leverages to improve its positions. And therefore, Mr. Ahmadinejad is acting and feeling completely invincible, and now he's trying to deter the world, especially, from, especially the United States, from attacking, uh, from attacking Iranian soil. And he's making these grandeur statements because he wants to make himself look like a Middle East strongman. Mm. Now, the United, the United States took on another Mid- Middle East strongman, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and look what happened. So by so he's hoping that by acting like a strong man, America is not going to make the same mistake twice and to attack Iran.
2: But couldn't that backfire? Because um, if if the Bush administration uh, did that to Saddam Hussein, couldn't they see him, uh, you know, say well, well, as Bush actually did say um, not long ago, you know, that we have to go in there and, and we have to. Uh, drop a bomb on Iran, words to that effect, because uh, he's another Saddam Hussein. He's too dangerous.
3: Uh, Shimon Peres, that he's another. He compared him. Shimon Peres, Israel's veteran politician, called him another Saddam Hussein. I don't recall President Bush threatening military action. I think it was a, it was an article in New Yorker magazine which talked about it. Look, you know, Ahmadinejad knows that, but Carol. Iran, you can't compare Iran against Iraq. Iran is far more powerful. Iraq, before the U.S. invasion, uh, was uh, suffering from economic sanctions. It couldn't run its economy. It couldn't buy weapons. Iran is the complete opposite. Iran has been selling oil at very high price. All these years, Iran has been developing its defense industry. It has missiles that can reach Israel. It has missiles that can destroy shipping in the Middle East. Iran is a country of 68 million people. Iraq is a country of 12 million people. Iran, Iran is a very mountainous country. It's absolutely massive. It's going to be extremely difficult for the United States to get to, to, uh, to defeat this regime. The regime does have a certain level of support. And also in terms of its nuclear infrastructure the Iranian government has managed to spread its nuclear installations all over the country and you know build massive structures under mountains which makes it very very difficult for any attacking air force to destroy all these installations in one go therefore Ahmadinejad has every reason and has every logic to to make these statements and I don't think he's too worried about this, his statements backfiring, because after what's happening in Iraq, I don't think the United States has can stomach another war, and the approval rating currently for President Bush shows that the American government, the American people, excuse me, are certainly not ready for another war in the Middle East, so all more of a reason why Mahmoud Ahmadinejad should feel confident to make these uh, statements.
2: Well, what about the Iranian people? How do they feel about him and and about these kinds of statements?
3: Um, The Iranian people, um, the the poor and and lower class, they like him because he's their man. He comes from a poor poor background himself, brought up in the southern uh, neighborhoods in Tehran where poor people live. He comes from a provincial area of Iran himself, but... um, He's, he's doing a lot of projects, which is helping them. And, you know, uh, his economic projects um, are commendable. I, I commend them. He's, he's, he's developing Iran's infrastructure. Um, he's spending a lot of money. could have an impact on inflation in Iran. But at the same time, it's high time that somebody started spending this oil money to develop the country. Mm. And people like that. People want to see the, he's, you know, investment in the rural areas has increased by 180% in Ahmadinejad's budget. Ahmadinejad, in the space of something like eight months, nine months of being president, has 11, he's traveled to eleven provincial areas in Iran. He's making people outside Tehran. He makes them feel that they belong to the country. Okay. Not many presidents did that. So internally, the poor and the middle lower class like him a lot. People in the middle class are not sure about him in terms of his economic policies. But when it comes to the nuclear question, Cal. Majority of Iranian people back him. He's playing the nationalistic card. He's saying, why does countries... Because he's declaring that the nuclear technology is for civilian purposes. So why should Ukraine, South Korea, and Czech Republic have nuclear technology and nuclear power stations? And why shouldn't Iran? Iran is a member of the international community. So, to him, the, the, the countries of the world are discriminating against Iran like they did before. And the people of Iran agree with him. Why shouldn't Iran have this technology, this nuclear technology for, for what it says is for civilian reasons? This is making Iranian people feel patriotic. He's making them feel strong. People like him in terms of the nuclear physical question. He's very popular.
2: Yeah, I can see how that works. All right. Um, a lot to think about. I hope we've been making you think. <laughs> I'm certainly thinking. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Meir Javay Dantar. Uh, he is a Middle East analyst, an Iranian living in Tel Aviv, and he's really giving us an inside scoop on um, what is going on. So stay tuned.
0: unlimited talk at your fingertips voiceamerica.com
1: World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is it is hype, right here on the Voice America channel, Fridays at 2 p.m.
4: The results
0: indicate your child has
4: neuroblastoma, there's evidence of metastasis, we we'll need to perform a surgical biopsy, MYBG scan, scan after you hear your child has cancer, chances are you don't hear anything else. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer. And to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council.
0: The powerhouse of Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about the Middle East, more complex than one could uh, hear about in a three-minute soundbite. It makes me think of what Rodney King said. Can't we all just get along? My guest today is Mayer. Je vais there? I hope I I'm trying to it.
3: far, but it's okay. Far, get, far, okay. You live in Beverly Hills, so you should get the Persian accent in no time.
2: <laughs> I'm trying to get it a little better each time, but um well, we've been talking about Iran and the bomb and um we've been talking about the pres what the president feels and what the Iranian public feels about it about them acquiring this technology um, what do the other arab countries in the region feel
3: um. The countries of the Persian Gulf, such as Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, they are concerned because uh, at the end of the day, they have always been competing with Iran strategically for power and influence in the Middle East. And if Iran becomes a nuclear state, then Iran is going to have a distinct military advantage over them. At the same time, let's not forget that a lot of these Persian Gulf countries and other countries of the region are major oil producers. They are members of the OPEC. They're always haggling with Iran, who is also a member of OPEC, over the price of oil. Now, just imagine if Iran becomes nuclear, it's going to have a much bigger say in OPEC in terms of determining the price of oil. And that means that sometimes, you know, they could be sharp differences of opinion. And at the end of the day, Iran's bigger power in the region might decide decisions that are to its own favor against the interest of the Persian Gulf states and other countries of the region. Nevertheless, many of these countries are are, are Muslim countries. They are Sunnis, which are, who are different to the Shiites, but at the end of the day, they are Muslim. The population in the Middle East want that uh, they believe that the Islamic world has been treated unfairly. Again, the whole what's happening in Iraq it's made them feel that they're being they're victimized. So they will want to see Iran. Um, win this uh, round of negotiations with the West over the nuclear over the nuclear issue, because they believe that if any Muslim country is is, is strong, then at the end of the day it will give them a, a, a stronger sense of identity, more confidence, and perhaps it will be a deterrence against the west uh, entrance of Western forces uh, to the middle east so uh, there's a sense of concern and at the same time there 's a sense of uh, support for for iran's uh, nuclear program in the in the Arab world,
2: yes, sort of banding together against the United States, so it really seems like um, the idea to uh, to start a war um, in Iraq had far greater um, ripples than President Bush anticipated
3: not just ripples advantages. Benefits. This was a dream come true for Iran. President Bush, in a space of three weeks, did what Ayatollah Khomeini couldn't do in eight years. Mm. He got rid of Saddam Hussein and he put the Shiites in charge. The Shiites in Iraq are very much affiliated and under the influence of the Iranian government. A lot of these politicians, you see, who uh, Shiite, Shiite politicians who are dealing with the United States right now, Carol, many of them lived in Iran for many, 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 many years. A lot of the soldiers who fought with Iran, Iraqi soldiers, who, Shiite soldiers who came to join the Shiite army of Iran to fight Saddam Hussein, these battle-hardened soldiers are back in Iraq, setting up intelligence cells, they're setting up businesses, they're setting up Iranian influence. This has worked like a treat for the Iranian government, Mm -hmm. and on the other side, America's other adventure in the Middle East to get rid of the Taliban government. The Taliban were actually quite anti-Iranian; they were killing a lot of uh, Shiite um, Afghanis who were affiliated to Iran. You know, in Mazar-e Sharif, the Taliban killed Iranian diplomats, and there was, you know, Iran amassed its its troops on the border. President Bush came got rid of the Taliban, and now, with the help of the Northern Army, and now, you know, the the Shiites have a much better position in in Afghanistan. So, in many ways, what President George Bush Bush did worked to Iran's favor.
2: And, uh, I I guess, without foresight or without having uh, enough understanding of the complexities and the interrelationships of the region, well, okay, in the brief time that we have left... (laughs) What would you do if you were, uh, I don't know, president of, uh, of the UN or of uh, Iran? or well, How do you think this could be solved?
3: If we're going to use the international law, if we're going to use internationally binding laws to solve this issue, then we should stick to its protocols. If we're going to say that Iran is cheating, and we're going to use the non-proliferation treaty to say that Iran is cheating, then we, the international community, should find evidence to say that Iran is cheating and Iran is not adhering to its commitments under under the non-proliferation treaty. So far, Carol, nothing has been found. So far, there's no smoking gun that says, yes, Iran is building a bomb. Intelligence agencies are doing it, but intelligence agency reports are not the criteria for judging countries in the international legal system. What is the criteria? Are inspections? Are the mechanisms applied by these international organisations such as the IAEA?
2: Well, how does that work, though? If the president is saying we have this, why are the people who from the UN, who are um, whose job it is to discover them, why are they having trouble finding it? I mean, the, is pres- it-
3: the president has never said we have a nuclear bomb. He's never said it's well, Iran.
2: Okay, but does it have to actually be the bomb itself, or just a certain level of technology?
3: The, the certain level of technology that Iran has today is uh, still hasn't crushed, crossed the threshold of mm. civilian into military. Iran is enriching uranium at three and a half percent that 's still very low one hundred and sixty four centrifuges that's still you can say that is for um, for you could say for laboratory purposes or for civilian purposes if Iran takes the step of going over and producing more centrifuges like they're saying they're going to produce 3,000 centrifuges by the end of this year and and then Ahmadinejad says that we're working on P2 centrifuge technology which is far more advanced than P1 and P2 is used in many cases for producing uh, weapon grade uranium, then the world can start asking him very strong questions and, and now I think now he's starting to cross the threshold of of the world's tolerance, and also he's starting to to cross the international community in terms of what is allowed for civilian purposes of nuclear technology. He's crossing the line slowly, slowly, but uh, he's doing it in a very smart salami tactic. And, you know, he's caught the world divided. Carol, Iran has been playing a very sophisticated chess game with the international community, with the Western world. The problem is that the West only woke up in the middle of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
3: Iran has very strong pieces in position. Not all of them are terrorism. Not all of them are military. Iran has very strong political pieces in position that strengthen its, its, uh, its, its standing in the international community and in the, and in the Middle East. And today, Carol, the Middle East is a far more complex, far more sensitive and far more stronger uh, and more imp- and more um, a stronger place than it was before, because of the price of oil, and because what happens in the American elections is directly impacted by what happens in this region, the Iranian government knows it, and it plays it to its own advantage
2: Well, so what you're saying is that the Iranian government wanted Bush to get in so that he could come in and finish off the job
3: Absolutely. that would help Iran. It, it, that I believe strongly that the Iranian government planted the seeds for the, for the invasion of Iraq. Why not? Why not? Saddam Hussein killed so many Iranians. He murdered many civilians. be very happy to see him go. I was very happy to see Saddam Hussein go. It worked in Iran's perfect advantage, Carol. You have no idea what that terrible man did to Iranian people. So if the Iranian government wanted to to get rid of Saddam Hussein then, you know, the Iranian people backed them. Now it's using this excuse for other ulterior motives, which not everybody is, uh, agrees with, including myself. But the Iranian government, I think another Iranian government would have planted the seeds for the of Saddam Hussein, because he was, an, he was a sworn enemy of the Persians. He was a sworn enemy of Iran. Even during the time of the Shah, he always had his eyes on Iranian territory. And to get rid of some, someone like that, would not be to the to the disadvantage of the Iranian
4: people mm-hmm.
2: well, I think that the way that you put it just now about the chess game that I think you 're right, playing a very sophisticated chess game that the America woke up in a little too late, well, talking about too late, I hear the music playing. I would like to thank you so very much for making a, a very complicated situation uh, at least a lot clearer um. I, I would want to give out also your website so that people can go and it's, there is a lot more information on the website, uh, that you can find out about. It's, the, his website is irananalyst.com. I-R-A-N com. And, uh, I'd like to thank you very much, Meir Jose D'Alfella, and for joining me and, uh, being on voiceamerica.com and for, uh, your insights. Undoubtedly I will be calling upon you again as uh, as things move as as people make more of their moves in this chess game. So thank you very much and you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman.